0: That feeling when Copilot gets everyone up to speed instantly? It's sunny again. When Copilot simplifies complex data so your teams can act, that sun's shining on a beach. And when Copilot uncovers hidden insights, you're on that beach with your people. And you find buried treasure. That's Microsoft Copilot. Learn more at Microsoft.com slash AI forall.
1: Dreaming of a better sleep? Tossing and turning is not your destiny.
0: Welcome to another episode of A People's Theology. I'm the host of A People's Theology, Mason Meninga. In this episode, I talk with Amy Kenny. Amy is a disabled scholar and the author of the recent book, My Body Is Not a Prayer Request: Disability Justice in the Church. Also musically featured throughout this episode is Hudson Freeman. Hudson Freeman is an indie artist from Missouri. You can get connected with Amy and Hudson and their work in the links in the episode description. I also want to personally invite you to Theology Beer Camp this October 12th through the 15th, 2022 in Chapel Hill, North Carolina. Theology Beer Camp is a time for you to meet some of your favorite theology podcasters, sip on your favorite beverages, and nerd out. You'll meet people like Pete Enns, Dr. Robin Henderson Espinoza, Trip Fuller, and even me. And if you register with the link in the episode description and use the promo code APT, you can receive $50 off your ticket. Theology Beer Camp, come thirsty, get nerdy. I hope to see you there. Today, I have Dr. Amy Kenny with me. And uh, I'll just say right out, Dr. Amy, I don't think I've ever had a Shakespeare lecturer on this podcast before. <laughs> Uh oh! (laughs) I I feel like this is uh, I'm like treading into new waters, and I don't know what to do with that. But you also are the uh, you also are a disability scholar, and you recently wrote this incredible book uh, called My Body Is Not a Prayer Request: Disability Justice in the Church. And I'm so excited to have this conversation about disability theology with you. But with all of that said, including the Shakespeare lecturer part of you, who is Amy Kenny to Amy Kenny?
1: Oh wow! What a great opening question. Well, I promise I won't quote any Shakespeare to you. <laughs> I I,
0: re- I read enough of Shakespeare in high school to like. I'm kind of done yeah, with that. To be honest, we all
1: did, right? And the and the the bummer about that is that usually we're assigned the worst ones. Hamlet. He's just a whiny, Correct. self-involved, yeah. very privileged. Hates his mom. Hates women. Who wants to read that? But I think today I am someone who is proud of being disabled. I'm unashamed of my disabled buddy mind. And I'm someone who is really invested in getting people to think about what it means when we say we all bear the image of the divine.
0: Mm, love that. I love that. Uh, is this your first book by any chance?
1: Yeah, it is my first book where it is my first book. I have written books before for academia, but that's just kind of different. So yeah, totally different
0: type of book. Yeah, absolutely. Well, because this book was a, a different type of book that you've, you've written, what would you say is something that you learned about yourself as you wrote about this book that maybe you didn't learn about yourself before as you wrote a book?
1: wow, these are really deep questions. <laughs> right off of the bat. Yeah, that's great. I learned about myself that I enjoy writing and that it's not just a task that I have to do or kind of do to process my feelings, but one that I really enjoy doing. And I kind of learn who I am in the process of writing and in revealing myself to myself through right. kind of processing how did I feel about that trauma? What did this spiritual abuse mean five years later, 10 years later? And really also allowing myself the space to take up space. Mm. I have felt often so infantilized, patriot, like infantilized and just pushed into small spaces in a lot of church places. So allowing myself to take up space.
0: That's wonderful. I, I would imagine, like you, you felt like you were able to take up space in a different way than what you're able to when you're writing more academic type of literature, right?
1: Yeah, it was certainly more vulnerable. I mean, we this we have this myth of objectivity in academia that we can be objective, right. and of course we can't, and we're always bringing ourselves to bear on whatever we're doing. But this book is intentionally more vulnerable and shares a lot of my own personal spiritual abuse and uh, medical trauma and discrimination in academic spaces. And so sharing that with the world and just kind of saying his, some of my story and hopefully we can learn from it is, yeah, it feels like I have see-through skin.
0: Right. I think the beautiful thing about you really taking up space in this book is that it certainly empowers people who have a similar story as yours to also take up space in their own lives. Uh, And so that's, I think, one of the beautiful things about this book is that you're taking up space in it, and that empowers other people to do the same who share very similar stories as you.
1: Yeah, that would be my hope is that non-disabled folks read it and are invited to the work that is already happening and to the conversations that are already happening, but maybe they are unaware of. And for other disabled folks that they would read it as a type of permission and invitation to take up more space to mm. tell the truth of their experiences and to not go into toxic positivity or into shame, but rather right. to allow ourselves to contain multitudes.
0: Mm, love that. I love that. So that's what you learned about yourself as you wrote the book. What did you maybe learn theologically? I mean, I would imagine you know you're an academic, you do a lot of research, so I'm sure there's some level of research. Obviously, it's a very different type of book, but there was some level of research that had to go on uh, with a book like this. What did you learn theologically in this book, or write, while writing this book that maybe you didn't know before?
1: I have long thought of God as disabled. That has been a way for me to Mm. really commune with the divine and think about how my own body-mind isn't shameful or anything to be embarrassed about, but that God, too, bears the marks Mm. of disability. And I think what I learned over the process of sharing that with people, with my writing group, and with other people that I was processing my writing with is that not only do a lot of other people think of God in that way, but that can be a, a, a reframing of God for us all as mm. a way of thinking about how it's so liberating that God's disabled. Because right. that means none of us have to be perfect or strong or any of these notions that we have of normalcy. We get to be just our full selves and right. we are wholly beloved as that.
0: Right. that the, There's something about like being created in the image of a God who's also disabled allows yeah. you to be f- disabled without feeling the shame of being disabled, but also feeling like in obviously open the book about like how you don't even have to overcome your disability necessarily either. Yeah, yeah absolutely.
1: And that when people have pushed me to do that, when people have pushed me into inspiration porn narratives or into overcoming narratives or super crip narratives, that I don't actually have to fulfill that for anyone else. I get to be fully myself right. and talking about liberation for disabled folks means that we get to be who we are and who we want to be, even if that's messy and complicated, right. it doesn't have to fit one of those narratives. Right.
0: And I would imagine that like exploring that in this book as you were writing it th- there's got to be something about either learning about yourself or just like a personal liberation that's happening in that in comparison to and it's not to say that you know the the Shakespearean literature and scholarship that you do is is not fully yourself either but there's got to be something a little different just because it is a different type of topic that you're writing about and exploring there's got to be a level of like liberation there that's just got to be really wonderful that maybe you haven't been able to like explore as deeply as when you're writing a book, you know, because a book takes a lot of work.
1: Yeah. And I think also it invites other people into the process. So I have a rich interior life as many of us do who are introverts, who, where I am thinking a lot of these things, I'm processing a lot of these things, having grown up in and around the church. And yet that doesn't necessarily mean that others are aware of that's how I'm processing God or my Mm -hmm. body or life itself. So Mm -hmm. inviting people in and having people say me too, or having Mm. people say, oh, that's interesting. I've never considered that before. And that helps me understand more of the mystery that is
0: God. Mm. Well, let's actually dive into the book a little bit more. You begin the book talking about the countless stories uh, that people with disabilities uh, have, uh, where people uh, just approach them and say, Hey, I want to pray for your healing. But then you talk about, and I, f- I find this really interesting. You talk a little bit about that story, or, the, you know, and that's just one example of many examples that happen, right? But then you immediately go into talking about some of the Bible stories where disability is celebrated and not something that needs to be overcome, right? So can you talk a little bit about some of these Bible stories? Because I think for, especially for my listeners, most of whom are coming from Christian backgrounds, they might have never thought about these stories from a disability lens, and especially from a disability lens where it's celebrated. So can you talk a little bit about some of those Bible stories? Because you mentioned a few, and I just think they're so great in the way that you you talk about them.
1: Thanks. Yeah, somehow everyone wants to talk to me about curing and give me remedies. You know, everything from kale to essential oils to a hammer I've been given. Somehow I'm still disabled. Everyone wants to talk to me about that and seemingly forgets that, quote, the lame will be a remnant or forgets Mm. that Jacob is disabled and Jesus is and Paul is and Mephibosheth. And there's no talk in those narratives of that being anything less than part of the work that God is doing in and with humanity. And I think what's really important to me in the book and as people are starting to receive the book and think about it is to notice the ways that we have been taught to separate ourselves from disability in these narratives. We often use terms that make us think that these characters are not disabled. We Mm. say thorn in the flesh instead of disabled, or we say stomach problems for Timothy instead of chronic illness. And it's not to anachronistically diagnose any of these characters, but rather to say that when Jacob has a limp, that is not coded as negative. That's connected to the blessing and to the transformation that Jacob is undergoing. And generally, when I hear disability talked about in churches and uh, in faith communities, it's usually connected to sin or some people will be a little nicer and not say that part out loud. But then it's connected to the fall or this idea that it's going to be erased in heaven. And that's just not the picture of new creation or eschatology that Jesus gives us. Jesus talks Mm -hmm. about us being in an accessible banquet that centers poor and disabled people. Mm -hmm. There's no talk of cure or condemnation. There's just community.
0: Mm -hmm. It even reminds me of the very famous story of when Jesus is resurrected and the doubting Thomas puts his finger in Jesus's wound. And we always interpret that from the lens of the doubting Thomas that, you know, that that here's this, this central figure who is doubting that Jesus really is resurrected rather than the fact that Jesus has a wound. He's disabled. He was just yeah. killed, right? And we never talk about it in that way. And obviously, I, I want to talk a little bit more about that, uh, about specifically Jesus and his disability later on. But it, it is to at least show and highlight the fact that we rarely think about when we ter- interpret some of these Bible stories, we we always twist them in a way where we actually don't focus on the fact that some of these people and characters actually have a disability.
1: Yeah. And there's such spiritual bypassing in that because it's this idea that, oh, that's just they're figuratively disabled. I've been told a lot of times. No Mm. one wants to switch legs with me, though. (laughs) You know, it's (laughs) this idea that that is figurative or connected to our spiritual lives only and not actually A physical embodiment and a lived reality. And it's so often just pushed into this idea of an afterlife that we don't have to really do anything about it now. If mm. we can think that disability is erased in heaven or in new creation, then that gives people this spiritual bypassing permission to not actually invest in my liberation here and now, not make mm. that church accessible, not make sure that disabled people are leading and, um, and really given the mic. Mm-hmm.
0: So I think mm-hmm.
1: that a lot of it is wrapped up in erasure and in a type of wanting to to not really do the work of disability inclusion.
0: Right. So one of the things that I I think is a key insight around disability and I remember learning about this a couple years ago when I was taking a class on disability in seminary was that disability is a social construct and that like changed everything about how I thought Disability was right. So, can you talk a little bit about how disability is a social construct? Because you also talk about this early on in the book. And I think for a lot of people who are able bodied, they really might not recognize this at, right away, right? Like, it doesn't seem like, wow, like disability really is a social construct. But when, when you start to flesh it out a little bit more, it like becomes very apparent, wow, that actually is a social construct. So, can you talk a little bit about how disability is socially constructed?
1: Most of us are familiar with the medical model of disability, which says that a person has a physical or mental impairment that substantially limits something in their life, an activity, a daily task. But many disability rights activists have pushed back on that and said, actually, it's not our body minds that disable us. It's society itself. Mm. The environment disables people rather than our body minds. So the classic example is that it's not difficult to use a wheelchair if we didn't put stairs everywhere. It's the fact that we don't have ramps that's disabling, not using a wheelchair itself. When I use my wheelchair, it's liberating. I can move quickly. I can run people over. (laughs) It's fun. (laughs) And think about how stigmatized it is to use a wheelchair or a mobility scooter But many of us get to work and to our social lives and in and around town by sitting down and traveling quickly on wheels, whether it be a bike, a car, a train. That's Mm -hmm. a typical way of propelling yourself forward quickly that isn't thought of in a negative capacity. But Mm -hmm. the moment it's a wheelchair, it becomes sad. And that's all Mm -hmm. wrapped up in this social definition of disability the idea that it is society's barriers that disable us, the way that the environment is built physically, but also in terms of attitudes and in terms of emotions. Now, of course, the social construct doesn't quite work for every disability because we're not a monolith and we're, you know, a very diverse range of the population. So chronic pain, it doesn't quite work for, I have chronic pain as well, but it's an important reframe because it helps us understand that we can change the way that we've put together society. We can right. change attitudes. We can create sensory rooms. We can create spaces that have captioning and ASL interpreters and Braille and large print and mm-hmm. ramps. And those are all our choices. And those all disable people when we
0: choose to exclude people. Right. It, it really became apparent to me when I was having this conversation that we rarely think about, let's say, somebody in their 70s, you know, if their, their sight is just slowly deteriorating, that when they get to that, uh, that point, when they wear glasses, we don't think of that as a, a disability because they're older and we expect sight, whatever, right? Like, again, but that's all the way that we construct our society and the way we imagine it. But when we see a four year old child have glasses, It's it's thought about very differently. And that's when it became very apparent that, like, actually, all of this is very socially constructed and we're imagining society in a certain way that here's the same thing, right? Like somebody just uh, slowly, like their sight is deteriorating or whatever it might be, and then they are wearing glasses, that that is a sign uh, and it's thought about very differently between a seven year old versus a seven year old.
1: Absolutely. And glasses are a great example because to my knowledge, people who wear glasses are not regularly approached by people trying to cure them (laughs) and saying, let me free those away because glasses are cool and you can get them designed with your aesthetic and they can be different shapes and sizes. And also you take glasses on and off. No one then questions whether you need those glasses. Mm -hmm. And that's true of mobility aids as well. Because disability is often dynamic, that is to say, it changes day-to-day, it fluctuates how much you're physically able to do and how visible it is, and because my disability is dynamic, when people see me using my wheelchair versus using my cane, there's often a kind of condemnation or critique with that, oh, why Mm -hmm. do you need this today and you didn't need it yesterday? And we don't really practice that with glasses. If you know that your friend uses glasses and you see them without, you may assume they have contacts or they're just not using them today or their glasses broke or there could be any number of reasons, Mm -hmm. but you don't approach them with the same suspicion as people do with other mobility aids.
0: Right, right. That kind of leads me into my next question. So by situating disability as a social construct... You talk about how this moves us away from understanding disability as a sin or a result of sin, but actually the sin is that which disables people. You talked a little bit about how society is what disables people. So can you talk a little bit more about that, about how that is actually the sin rather than disability itself being like a result of sin?
1: Yeah, I have been told a lot by church folks what sin is preventing you from getting up and walking? Or if you just believed you would run or Jesus didn't die for you to be in a wheelchair. I don't even really know what that last one means, but (laughs) I think they all come from the same place of assuming that disability is a sin. And that's really harmful, obviously to me because that's a dehumanizing and destructive thing to think about the diversity of humanity. But it's also harmful to people who aren't disabled because it suggests that there's a hierarchy of body minds. And that ableist impulse is connected to everything from racism to transphobia to misogyny. It allows and excuses a lot of bigotry, exclusion, and a lot of really harmful attitudes and practices. Mm. The church itself fought against ADA, the Americans with Disabilities Act, when it was signed into law in 1990. So even today, it is legal in Christian schools and churches to discriminate against disabled people.
0: Wow. It it also reminds me, uh, not just talking about sin, but also, and I think you briefly mentioned this at the beginning, but eschatology-wise, when you think about all of this, that you know, if you think about the eschaton of this world of liberation, right? Like that, you know, I'm kind of in that world where when I think of eschatology, I think about liberation, that liberation is not eliminating disability or disabilities uh, or, or rather like you know things like if if somebody's not able to see or if um you know somebody has some sort of chronic illness or something that's not what needs to be liberated that our bodies don't need to be liberated from that it's actually society liberating and creating conditions where disabled people are able to be free and able to do all the things that everybody's able to do that accessibility piece that is an eschaton of liberation, not one where illnesses and other things are eliminated or cured, as you kind of put it. So anyway, from an eschatology lens, I think that really is an important way to think about that as well.
1: Yeah. And this idea that our liberation is bound up in one another and Mm. it doesn't benefit the broader society for one person to get some myth of a Baywatch body, whatever that looks like. But that's Mm -hmm. essentially all that folks who give me these poems of no wheelchairs in heaven can really imagine. It's this individualistic, very um, limited understanding of what liberation is, that it means that one body-mind is going to be free of disability, not even taking into account that that's just not really how chromosomes and nerves and genetics right, right. work, but even if you could somehow do that, it is a a very ableist and harmful idea because we should be picturing the eschaton as ramps and as fully accessible and as giving mm. everyone permission to live into their full selves, and that not rooted in these ideas of Thinness, whiteness, able bodiedness, cishet, you know, all of these mm-hmm. kind of notions that are ultimately socially constructed as well.
0: Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I remember even as a child, and I grew up in the conservative evangelical world. So I really had this, you know, whole vision of heaven and got to pray the right prayer and you'll get there kind of thing. And I remember distinctly asking Ten my, times. <laughs> yeah. And I remember distinctly asking my dad one time when we die, do, like when we go to heaven, are our bodies like whatever we died, you know, 80 years old or whatever our bodies are at that time, right? And I remember asking him that question, and I really had no idea the ableism that was happening. In a question like that, and I remember him saying something along the lines that no, when we die and we go to heaven, the bodies that we have in heaven are like what we have when we were in our twenties. You know, when we think of our bodies as being like the best that they were, whatever that would be, right? And but you know, at that time, I really had no idea the ableism that was going on with that, and that really probably shaped my imagination around disability and ableism and all those different things. Uh, even though it was very implicit at that time when I was you know eight years old or whatever, but yeah, it's really interesting the way that we talk about this, especially in some of those conservative evangelical circles. It really shapes the way we think about disability.
1: Oh, that's so funny, too, because, I mean, you were eight, so you're still forming and yeah. thinking about what you think and you're asking questions and being curious and all that's great. But, you know, I'd love to hear from your dad's perspective where he's getting that. Like, yeah, why... no, and that's
0: the thing is like, you're not getting that from the Bible. Somebody's telling you this.
1: The Bible is clear, and yet I'm just going to add this whole notion to it. There's something strange about holding both of those truths at once. I'm not generally right. a Bible is clear person, but if you are, and then also you are adding on this whole kind of appendix of, right. and bodies have to look and function like this, and never mind that, if you can't picture heaven without disabled people being there, Jesus can't be there.
0: Exactly. Exactly. Well,
1: that's awkward.
0: <laughs> that's a great point. It's a great point. Uh, another interesting point that you bring up in the book that I think is really helpful, and we've touched on this a little bit around you know, glasses and that kind of thing, but you talk about how in some way, shape, or form, all people at some point in their lives probably have a disability. And I think that's a really important way to think about this too. So disability in one way is an experience that all people have to some degree. Uh, and so in, in some way, shape, or form, you could really argue that disability is a kind of universal human experience. Uh, and so I'm kind of curious, like, what does that say then about the human condition that disability is likely a very human experience?
1: Yeah, this this is one of the particularly strange aspects of people Treating me as though I am a fragile little bird because Mm. all of our bodies are fragile Mm. and delightfully so. All of our bodies have needs, all of our bodies have strengths, all of those needs and strengths fluctuate over time, and they shouldn't be rooted in shame when we're asking for those needs to be met. It's just that we have societally decided that my needs are somehow tragic and Mm. other people's needs are not. Some mm-hmm. days I need help getting dressed. Other days I don't. There's nothing inherently sad about that. We mm-hmm. all get dressed. Mm-hmm. I think we have decided that certain access needs being met, having a bathroom available to you, um, you know, taking public transport, not growing all of your own food, these things. All of us have decided somehow that those are just normative and that Mm -hmm. anything that is connected to a disabled body mind is somehow sad or lacking. And that's not only is that societally constructed, but that shifts over time. So of course, many of us have had temporary disabilities where we've thrown out a knee or a back or broken a bone and had to adjust how we're meeting our access needs at any given day. But also, as we age, most people, by age or accident, will become disabled. Mm. So it just doesn't really make sense to think that the 26% of the U.S. population who are disabled are somehow uniquely fragile compared
0: to right. the rest
1: of humanity. I think it's important for us to know that my needs are not special. They are human.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, and it does seem that like if this is a mostly universal human experience, then not only is it something that we all should be able to empathize with one another, but also the need for community that we all need each other to care for each other in the midst of our disabilities so that we can, you know, you know, live the most thriving life that we're able to. But it, like when I'm hearing you talk about this, like it seems as if The need for community is absolutely essential in all of this.
1: Yeah, and I think really what we're naming is interdependence, right? None of us are independent. All of us rely on one another for food, shelter, love, belonging, community, and sometimes non-disabled folks can fool themselves for a little bit longer into believing that they are independent, but they're really not. Mm. So, If we would all embrace interdependence, that would actually give us permission, I think, to to embrace our access needs, to name them without shame, and also to make sure that as we are meeting one another's access needs, we're also resting. We live in this capitalistic society that tells us that we are only valuable if we produce and that's just not a a lie that disabled people can believe because Mm -hmm. we know that our worth comes simply because we are made in the image of the divine Mm -hmm. and that is enough and what if everyone believed it?
0: I was just going to bring up the fact that, especially in a place like America, where independence is this like preeminent value, and then obviously out of that comes capitalism, it does seem like all of that is so antithetical to disability and the need for all of us to be in community for, with one another, to actually care for each other's needs.
1: Yeah. And it's, I think, difficult for a lot of US Americans then to really come to an understanding that they are not independent. Mm. They cannot actually produce their self-worth. That's not how Mm. it works. And that no amount of side hustle or accolades on resume, (laughs) no amount of any of that actually deems you more worthy. It's as though... Even in church spaces, people have really internalized that hierarchy of humanity, and they're just trying to climb to the top of the ladder when Mm -hmm. actually we're all interdependent on one another, and that hierarchy is what needs to be dismantled.
0: This episode of A People's Theology is brought to you by United Theological Seminary of the Twin Cities. Are you considering exploring your faith more deeply, or are you called to ministry but haven't found a seminary that is quite right for you? When you come to United, you join a community that is intentionally open, socially aware, and theologically adventurous. United's passion is equipping leaders to make real, lasting change in the world through their many different degree programs, whether your vocation is in faith leadership, nonprofit leadership, academia, the arts, activism, or social entrepreneurship. And the best news is you don't have to uproot your life to attend seminary. United offers maximum flexibility to fit your schedule. Attend on campus or online, part-time or full-time. Their leading distance learning technology allows students to be active in the classroom and engaged with the United community. Want to learn more? Visit unitedseminary.edu forward slash or click the link in the episode description and receive a $1,000 scholarship when you apply and are admitted. United Theological Seminary of the Twin Cities, training leaders to dismantle systems of oppression, care for the spiritual needs of a multi-faith world, and push the boundaries of theology. So I mentioned before, I want to talk a little bit about Jesus. This is a theology podcast (laughs) after all. So... What Let's a great opener. Yeah, <laughs> Let's exactly. talk a little bit
1: about Jesus. Let's talk about Let Jesus. Let me get my tracks out. <laughs> <laughs>
0: so when we talk about disability as this like very universal human experience, uh, you know, there, there is that part of it. But also in the Christian tradition, we even make this claim that even God in the person of Jesus Is disabled, So it's not just even this universal human experience, but it's also a divine experience as well. So can you talk talk a little bit about how disability is also a central part of Christianity, especially as it relates to God and the person of Jesus and Jesus becoming disabled?
1: Yeah, we've already mentioned the passage where resurrected Jesus appears to Doubting Thomas and says, you know, put your hands in my side, look at my wounds, look at my scars. And from what we know of crucifixion, I don't think this is just a teeny little scratch on his Mm. palm. I think Mm -hmm. these are disabling wounds. Mm -hmm. I think these are all-encompassing and incredibly disfiguring. Mm -hmm. And that's important because that doesn't diminish the divinity of Christ Mm
0: -hmm. in that
1: moment or in our theology. And it's also important because if we believe that Jesus can defeat these dominions of darkness and defeat death itself, wouldn't Jesus have the power to erase those wounds if they were in any way negative or stigmatizing? Mm
0: -hmm. No,
1: I don't think that's a whoopsie. You know, Mm. I think that that is deliberate. And I think that's important because the disabled Christ bears the marks of our redemption and humanity and divinity and i think it gives me a way of thinking about my own disabled body mind not as the way that i have often been taught in the church as it's something negative or a lack but actually it's a gain
0: mhm you even mention at some point in the book where you know somebody in the military could have an injury from war and that could be you know stitched up or whatever it might be right But the other disability involved in that that could linger on for much longer than the physical injury is the traumatization. And that is actually itself disabling. And I think we often don't think about this crucifixion of Jesus in that way enough where this clearly is a very traumatizing experience, not only obviously just for Jesus, but for his friends and his family that were present for this event. And I often I don't think we talk a little bit about the disability That is involved with not just obviously the physicality of the crucifixion, but also the disability of the trauma that's involved, again, not just for Jesus, but for everybody who is at the event. It's got to be a very disabling event from just a trauma standpoint.
1: Yeah. And this idea of that we know that that plays out in our body minds for years to come, that Mm -hmm. any of us who have done EMDR raise our hands. Any of us who mm-hmm. have done work on PTSD, you know, we know that trauma stays with us and it gets, it really gets logged in our body minds. Mm-hmm. And there's a social stigma as well to Jesus being crucified. We know that that was a punishment reserved for, as a way to socially stigmatize. So I yes. think it's connected to disability there as well. Yeah. And what a great reframe of disability to think that it's not just this kind of, oh, Jesus empathizes with your wounds. No, Jesus understands the social stigma, the trauma, and the physicality of what it means to be disabled.
0: Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Do you think there's much in the biblical narratives in the gospels where that particular story you see the caring of the community working? through like that the community is caring for Jesus's disability and for the others who are disabled from that event. Do you see that much? You know, when I think back to some of those gospels, it doesn't like, it seems like a lot of them kind of just quickly turn into, Oh, Jesus is alive. Then he is transfigured and that's kind of the end of it. And you don't really, but, but I could be wrong. Maybe I'm just like not reading in that lens well enough, but I'm just kind of curious. Like, do you see a lot of this like community care that I think is needed when it comes to disability in those stories.
1: I think I do from the women,
0: Mm. you know, they Mm -hmm. come with,
1: with spices and, and they remain caring even after it's shameful, even after it is stigmatized and ostracizing. So I think there's a type of community care there. And I think also that, That's where our sanctified imaginations can be at work because a lot of times the ways the stories are recorded are rooted in some ableist ideas or Mm -hmm. rooted in some limited understandings of community care. So I always try to imagine what else is taking place in these narratives. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And then I think maybe another place we see it is thinking about in Revelation, I know, which is a strange place to jump, but thinking about Revelation, how we hear that the lamb that was slain is the one on the throne and that's the one being praised and exalted and and celebrated. So I think there's something there too mm-hmm. about this idea of the way the community is gathering to care about a disabled figure.
0: Mm-hmm. One of the other things that I've explored over the last couple of years is kind of in a lot of like atonement theories around Christianity is this idea that Jesus being crucified and therefore obviously disabled is the thing that saves humanity. And I'm kind of wondering like how you think through that, that like disability is a necessity or like, Uh, Creating a disability in a person is a necessity for salvation, and how that then gets manifested, uh, you know, throughout the rest of human history. I'm just kind of curious, like how you think through that, because it does seem like maybe thinking that somebody becoming disabled as a way of salvation is maybe not the best way to think about uh, all of this. But also, I'm curious, like from your perspective, like how you think about all of that.
1: Agreed, and I. I'm not generally a fan of atonement theories that right. want us to include violence and trauma, right, as we've been right. talking about. And I would suspect you're not as well. I think, I think that is a kind of slippery and tricky thing to name. But I also realize that God, in talking to Moses, takes credit for disability and talks about it as a, as a gain, And I think in general, what can be helpful in reading and understanding disability in scripture more is if we think about disability as a culture and an embodied Mm. experience and less as just a singular identity or less as that medical model or even the Mm -hmm, social mm -hmm. model and go beyond that to thinking about it as a game, something that can help us understand ourselves and God more. And so specifically with Jesus becoming like word taking on flesh and all of that and what parts of that were necessary and which parts of that are salvation, I'll let other people debate. But I do think there's something connected to the fluidity and um, and dynamism of disability mm-hmm. there. Mm-hmm. God is burning bush and lion and cloud and fire and in the still small voice and embodied and in the pregnant belly and the stars mm-hmm. above and i think that is more connected to disability than any atonement theory is
0: mm-hmm. you made this comment really quickly and i'm i'm really curious about it because i just wrote my master's thesis on embodiment but you mentioned that disability to like reframe it as this embodied experience and i'd love for you to unpack that more like what do you mean by that because i find that very very curious
1: oh what did you write in your master's thesis yeah
0: Yeah, well, I'll I'll put
1: you on the spot for one. Yeah,
0: so yeah, so uh, I I did my master's at a seminary, and I did my master's thesis around basically I was kind of trying to construct a systematic theology of embodiment. But what I did was, you know, a lot of embodiment when we you know read books about embodiment a lot of times we talk about the body very abstractly and the thing that i really wanted to do was actually engage the physiology of the body and so what i did is actually engage a lot of uh new biology or science around biology and physiology that is specifically like studying the relationship of our bodies and religion and what's happening in those experiences like when a Persons having a religious experience what's happening in our bodies and our brains and that was what I was really curious about And so what I did was took that research and then basically made theological conclusions that okay If this is what's happening in our bodies during religious experiences, this is what we should believe about God This is what we should believe about salvation, etc. Cetera, etc. Cetera, right. So anyway, that's what I did for my thesis so anyway all about embodiment i'm a really big fan very interested in it but yeah i'm just and i, I did include a little nancy iceland in my ah, my salvation yes. piece so i'm sure you're familiar with her work uh but anyway i'm just curious what uh you think about when um or like how do you how you would unpack that a little, a little bit more when you talk about disability as an embodied experience
1: yeah that's amazing and i would love
0: I can send it over to you. Yeah. I would love to to hear your
1: findings too on what happens in these curing moments, because it's so interesting the way that, you know, the music swells and there's just Mm. a very certain type of emotion and emotional manipulation that's happening in these Mm -hmm. attempted curings that I've experienced. So that would be interesting to know what's happening physiologically, but yes, to answer your question. So I think it's, Something that I really appreciate about disability rights activism and disability justice activism is this idea that we are not, you know, mind-body dualism, but that we are body minds and those mm-hmm. are connected. And even using the phrase body-mind is important because what we think and yeah, Just how in the we same feel... way that
0: physics use space-time, right? Like they don't separate yes. space or time. It's, it's always space-time, right? Very important. Exactly.
1: Yeah. So to think that a lot of times people will say that I live with a disability. Well, it's not my roommate and I can't kick it out when I get angry at them (laughs) in a fight. That's not really a helpful way of talking about disability because it is actually in my whole nervous system and it Mm -hmm. is in my body mind. And so nothing I think or do or interact with the world can be separated from the fact that I am disabled. Mm -hmm. So I think that it's a very important way of inviting non-disabled people into thinking about how we are embodied and we like to think that we're brains on sticks and that we're rational thinking beings, but that's one of the things that disabled people can teach Mm non-disabled people is really how to be embodied, how Mm -hmm. to listen well to your body, how to live by spoons and crip time and not rely on pushing yourself through caffeine and mm-hmm. calendars to keep producing mm-hmm. and really to, to know that your body isn't, isn't trying to mislead you. It's there for your good. You know, mm-hmm. our bodies are mm-hmm. good and, and contain good data for us to learn from and listen to.
0: Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. How do you hope that this book inspires and liberates its readers?
1: I hope that people have a meeting with themselves and Mm. rethink some of their assumptions around disability, both in scripture, but also in churches and in life. Even if people don't admit it, I think the general assumption is that disability is a loss, a lack, a tragedy, a sin, a burden. And all of our experiences are complex and messy, but it is so much more than those things. And that would be my hope.
0: Mm
1: -hmm. For disabled people, I hope it gives just another way to describe some of their own experiences and then gives them permission. No one needs my permission, but gives them permission to really share their own stories. We need Mm -hmm. more disabled people writing, we need more disabled people sharing their own theologies Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. so that we can continue to expand our understanding of God and the diversity of creation.
0: Love that. Love that. Last question, Dr. Amy, how can listeners get connected to you and your work?
1: I'm sometimes on social media at Dr. (laughs) Amy Kenny, sometimes not because I'm an introvert, um, (laughs) but there or at my website, amy kennycom
0: Wonderful. And where can people get the book?
1: You can get it really anywhere books are sold, I think.
0: Awesome. So pretty, pretty easy. Uh, You know, I'm always a big fan of uh, plugging your local bookstore if you can get it from there. Uh, But obviously there's lots of other ways for people to get the book as well. Well, thank you so much for chatting a little bit more about this. Uh, I I absolutely think the world of of this book, uh, it's definitely, I think, you know, there are certainly disability theology books that I've read in seminary that are, you know, they're pretty academic and all of that. But this is such a great book for a person who's just wanting to start learning a little bit more about this conversation I think this is the perfect book for that and so so thank you so much for writing that uh there's just it's such a beautifully written book and and, um, I'm glad that we were able to chat a little, little bit more about it
1: well thanks Mason thanks for having me